Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to another episode of The Full Ratchet. We've got a great one today as we're finally addressing the topic of AI. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who's reached out recently over email. Uh, Lots of great investors and entrepreneurs connecting with me, and uh, it's just been a real pleasure to get a chance to speak with some of you and hear what you guys are focused on. All right, if I could ask for a quick favor, if you've been listening to the show and you appreciate what we do, a review in iTunes would be a huge help. It's a little difficult to do it from the mobile app, uh, but certainly if you have iTunes open on your PC, you can just search in the iTunes store for the full ratchet. You find it there, and if you click through, you'll find a little link to write a review. That'd be a huge help to me if you'd be willing to do that. And it helps others find the show. So that would be great. Okay, today we welcome Nathan Banesh of Playfair Capital to discuss artificial intelligence. We will cover questions including, can you start off with a simple definition of artificial intelligence? How does the term machine learning relate to AI and what are the differences? An explanation of the law of accelerating returns and also Moore's law and how those two relate to the concept of AI. An overview of the different types of AI, including artificial narrow intelligence, artificial general intelligence, and artificial superintelligence. When the foremost thinkers believe that AGI and ASI, general and superintelligence, will be reached. What, aside from raw brain power, distinguishes different types of smart beings from one another? How the Turing test relates to AI and why many believe that it is the signal of whether true artificial intelligence exists. Then we talk about the different types of technologies and categories within the AI landscape. We also touch on some of the best-known examples of AI that have come about in the news in recent years. And finally, how investors organize and structure AI from an investment approach and choose which areas they're going to deploy capital into. Lots of great detail in today's show. And in part one, we are talking more about the landscape of AI and why that's important. Whereas in part two of the interview, we'll get very deep into the funding aspect of AI and what that means for startup investors. Next up is the interview with Nathan Banesh of Playfair Capital. Today, we have Nathan Banesh. Nathan has been with Playfair Capital since 2013 and focuses on deal sourcing, due diligence, and ongoing portfolio support. 
Prior to Playfair, Nathan earned a PhD in oncology as a Gates Scholar at the University of Cambridge and has done a BA in biology from Williams College. I was recently chatting with Sean Everett, who of course published one of the most robust resources on AI over on medium.com. And I asked Sean who he thought would be the best person to interview on the subject. And after his extensive research, he suggested Nathan as one of the earliest investors on top of true AI that he's ever seen. Nathan, it's a big pleasure to have you, and thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Nick. Yeah, can you start us off by just telling us about how you got into startup investing and venture capital? Yeah, sure. Um, so I suppose I had a, a bit more of a, a roundabout um, route than a traditional um, investors in the space. So yeah, I was um, in college originally interested in, uh, in medicine, actually, because of the fact that you know medicine is a, is a complex space. Um, it deals with, with human beings and understanding biology and understanding how and why it goes wrong so that we can design um, you know, therapeutics and, and methodologies to try and prevent that. So I was always very interested in, in complex problems and trying to come up with elegant solutions that you know, eventually will impact millions of people. But throughout my college career and increasingly my, in my graduate career, I started to realize that, that, in fact, the time scale that's required to to, to bring about that change and bring about that innovation in the healthcare space is, you know, in the order of a decade and requires you know, over a billion to get a drug to, to market from a lab. Um, and, uh, and, you know, plagued for better or for worse by, you know, a lot of regulation with the FDA and coupled to, you know, the years of probably decades of training that's required to, to kind of have that translational career between medicine and research. You know, I just, I just increasingly thought that it wasn't really the right career track for me to, to get about that, that core motivation. Meanwhile, when I was in college, we, you know, we saw the birth of the iPhone, uh, the birth of a lot of consumer web services like Dropbox and Twitter and SoundCloud and Skype. And just as a naive consumer, the, all these services were made, making my life so much richer and, and really got about core problems that, that I had to deal with every day. And, and I saw the same sort of underlying um, motivation for entrepreneurs in that space that I, that I was personally motivated with that brought me to the healthcare space. So, so really, I just transitioned uh, you know, a consumer, everyday person interest into a career one by moving into the software world instead of continuing a career in the, in the healthcare space. And then, and then the question of actually, I guess getting getting your hands on uh, on capital to be able to invest—that's you know a question of um, right place and right time. To be honest, um, especially that you know the venture ecosystem in Europe and London is far smaller than what's um, what's available in the U.S. So yeah, I had a uh, you know I knocked on a, a lot of different doors and had the good fortune of meeting Fede, who was an angel who was investing by himself for about two years before he set up Playfair as a as a team. Um, and uh, we got along really well, and and there was uh, you know need to to add more structure and formality to what we were doing, and provide a new array of services to portfolio companies as the you know desire that entrepreneurs had to move from a product which was just purely getting money versus getting um, support for actually building a company was really coming along in earnest uh, you know around 2010 uh, and thereafter when we started. So that's sort of uh, how I ended up here. You're based in London, but I'm sensing your accent the couple times that we've spoken is, I'm not sure it sounds like a Londoner. Are you from the area? <laughs> yeah, it's a, bit of, it's a bit of a confused mess. Um, I'm, originally, um, I'm originally from France, but I went to school in, uh, in Geneva in Switzerland, and, um, and I studied in English. Took a bunch of courses in French as well, where I'm also fluent. But, but yeah, I went to university in the States and uh, 
yeah, kind of didn't didn't look back ever since really. So I did three years there, one year abroad in the UK as an undergrad, and then uh, my graduate school in the UK. So yeah, the accent kind of changes depending who I, who I speak to, but it's uh, it's not that English, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little jealous that you went to school in Geneva. I spent a, a summer in Lausanne, and uh, oh, pretty, yeah. I never wanted to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place. And can you tell us a little bit more about Playfair's focus and and what you <clears throat> what you focus on there? Yeah, so so the, you know the benefit of having a single LP is the you know the focus can can, can evolve over time. But really, like the, the areas that we've been interested from from the get go is um, is uh, your core technologies that enable data driven companies and data creating companies. But the original investment that that Fede had made back in 2010 was in a business called Dudil that was enabling private companies to to understand more about those businesses that they were doing business with from the perspective of operating metrics and, and directorship structures and group structures by gathering publicly available information and information that was deposited in, in the UK and Companies House, for example. And so we've always been very interested in, uh, in the meteoric rise of, of data in various flavors that, that that's available you know, across enterprises and consumers and, and really realizing that there needs to be a new infrastructure that's built to support the capture, the the analysis, the presentation, and then increasingly the, the automation and intelligence on top of that um, that data. And so, so we're big believers in, uh, in investing in core technologies that support that ecosystem. And of course, within that is is a topic of today, which is uh, which is AI. And you know, the other area of focus that, that we have is on companies that are that are using some of those core technologies that have been you know packaged by by businesses and, and either sold as a SaaS product, for example, or, or given away in the open source community. But are instead taking these components and compiling them together in a way that's that's not obvious that they really incorporates uh, you know a granular understanding of their user base and how experiences need to be crafted for you know compelling habitual behaviors to be developed with that product in mind because as you see the the barriers to creating software companies just increasingly drop over time that just means that competition gets more heated with time which eventually means that, that really you differentiate on the basis of your data, your core technology, and your user experience. And so that's sort of the, the areas in which we want to make investments. Yeah, so you mentioned AI a couple times there, and clearly today's topic is AI. Um, so can you start us off with a simple definition of artificial intelligence? Yeah, s- simple. <laughs> that's going to be a tough one. Um, the, the way I view it, because um, there's, there's a few different camps, I suppose, is really that AI is, is is the field of building computer systems that you know can understand and learn from observations um, without the need to be explicitly programmed. Um, and and increasingly, the goal for for AI is really that that these systems can perform functions that are increasingly human like, um, so that they, they they get to aspects of human cognition um, where those outputs are, are again optimized by learning from learning automatically from data versus needing to be hard coded. Um, so that's that's the ultimate goal, and and within that, there's a you know, plethora of of enabling technologies and, and differing fields that kind of feed into that to that broader goal. Great, and uh, you know we hear this term machine learning often, and it's <clears throat> used in the AI discussion. Um, in your estimation, is machine learning and AI synonymous, or can you point out some of the differences? Yeah, um, so my view is. AI is the the umbrella term, so that's the 
that's the ultimate goal, encompassing the you know variety of disciplines and technologies that are required to build those those self-learning intelligent systems that perform you know human-like cognitive functions. Yep. Where where machine learning is one subset of that, uh, and within machine learning you have separate approaches, whether they're supervised or unsupervised, deep learning, uh, and other buzzwords that you might be hearing today. But you know another separate area which I think comes under AI is uh, it's increasing the field of robotics because as we want machines to be able to do more and more real-world relevant tasks that ends up spanning far more than, than what's possible on a desktop computer or on a smartphone. So areas like robotics, for example, also fit under, under AI, but those, those are not necessarily machine learning, although some machine learning techniques might be important for robotics. Sure. Can we start off just backing up on the whole concept of artificial intelligence? Would you be able to explain the law of accelerating returns for us? And also how that concept uh, relates to AI. Yeah. So, I mean, th- th- this idea is really one that was um, this part and parcel of uh, Ray Kurzweil's right. um, thesis, who's, who's, who's now at Google. Um, and he's notorious for, for making quite a number of what was seemed to be outlandish predictions into what was possible technologically in the future. And, and in quite an uncanny way, a lot of them have, have actually panned out. Driverless cars is one, for example. And so, so his idea of the law of accelerating returns is really that uh, the sort of the, the fundamental measures of of, uh, of information technology, which is essentially compute capacity and cost, follow exponential trajectories, and these trajectories can be predictable. And and what's what's interesting as well is that he says that the that this exponential growth in trajectories um, are essentially exponential in their own right. And and what's important to note is that the the consequence of the law of accelerating returns is that at some point you get you get this moment called singularity which is uh, the point at which uh, machine intelligence so intelligence that's not human is essentially greater than than that exhibited by humans and you know one of the other laws that kind of feeds into this this thesis is uh is of course moore's law which is um coined by the then chairman of, of intel and the co-inventor of integrated circuits which essentially states that you know the number of transistors that can fit on a chip uh, roughly doubles every two years. So essentially, the compute capacity that can fit on a chip increases every two years, and that's one of the driving forces behind this this law of accelerating returns, which which contributes to to this um, you know exponential growth in in technological ability. Yeah, and this all relates to sort of these three types of AI that we've heard about. There's ANI, yeah. AGI, and ASI. Um, ANI being artificial narrow intelligence, AGI being artificial general intelligence, and ASI being artificial super intelligence. Um, Um, Would you be willing to give us an overview and describe the difference between the three of those? Yeah. So you you can regard this as a a spectrum from intelligence that's really restricted to a specific domain, a very specific subtask, and is often built with the sole intention of tackling that task. And that's narrowed all the way to superintelligence, which is uh, essentially the point, the point of singularity where machines are, are, more, are more intelligent um, than humans. And so a good example of ANI is how IBM's Deep Blue beat Garrett Kasparov in chess. Uh, now, you know, this computer um, was tasked specifically with this problem. It's not able to do any other task. Therefore, its ability is narrow and really it doesn't exhibit any benefit to to other problems in the world. Now, as, as you move towards general intelligence, which is the approach that 
or the or the goal that uh, Google DeepMind is, is seeking to achieve, and others are as well, is that where intelligence that's exhibited by a non-human system is is on par with tasks that can be completed by humans. Um, you know, these tasks range from knowledge representation and reasoning to planning and self-learning, communicating and, and exhibiting emotion. And, and importantly, the field thinks that AGI systems must be able to solve this multitude of tasks without needing to be purposefully rebuilt or re-engineered in some way for, for this new task that they're being staffed on. And yeah, and so artificial superintelligence to end is, is this idea that machines would be smarter than humans. And, and that encompasses every field. So, you know, including creativity and wisdom and social skills uh, and moving around in the, in the real world, for example. And Nick Bostrom, who's, who's um, one of the uh, philosophers who's first forwarded this idea a lot with his um, book on the topic, says that ASI can be exhibited by an individual computer or a network of devices. So it's, it's, it doesn't have to be exhibited in, in any specific way, but just that for non-human uh, intelligence to be more performant in every single task than that exhibited by humans. Yeah, so we've seen many examples of ANI. You mentioned there's mm. been a bunch of machine learning programs around chess, and Google has a number of businesses that are uh, that are focused on ANI. They often cite the the spam filters within Gmail. Yep. Can you talk about when AGI is forecasted to be reached? So the point at which machines are sort of at the, the capability level of one individual human, and also when some of the smartest minds in this field are, are projecting that ASI potentially could be reached? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I really don't know how you can accurately point to a certain day at which this is going to happen, but <laughs> yeah. I think generally, you know, general intelligence is, is believed to, to occur in the next like decade or two, I think. And then some people float singularity as 20, 2040. Yep. Um, but, but, you know, again, who knows, who knows? Um, but I, I do think that, you know, in this, in this whole debate, there's, there's definitely value for ANI. Like in, in a lot of cases, having a system that's specifically engineered for your task is, is more than sufficient because at the end of the day, you know, in my view, a lot of, the benefits of, of AI is that it tackles an, uh, you know, a narrow, a narrow task that's that's of relevance to to its user. It's it's really designed to to overcome you know inefficiencies that, that we as humans exhibit in the way that we behave and the way that we conduct our work. You know, sometimes we we have to do very mundane, repetitive tasks, and at some point we'll make mistakes just because we get bored or tired. Now, you know, if you can come up with with an AI that that solves that, I think it's it's of great value in and of itself. As is, um, you know, AGI from a research perspective. You know, the, the only time at which I think you can say that AGI is more valuable than, than ANI is if, is if the former systems do genuinely perform better than than uh, than the narrow ones. So some of this debate is is academic. Some of it is is theoretical, uh, and then and then a lot of it, a lot of uh, these three descriptions are, are used by by people who who try and forecast um, how we should try and control systems that we build today such that they're not co-opted for tasks or purposes that we didn't imagine when we were building them. So we talked about the law of accelerating returns. Uh, we talked about Moore's law. But you know, a lot of the things I've come across on AI talk about raw computing power, raw brain power. And that's not really the only thing that distinguishes smart beings from, from one another. Mm. From a scientific standpoint, would you be willing to point out some of the key things that distinguish humans from other organisms on the planet, 
as well as key things that distinguish humans from existing examples of AI? Yeah, I mean, uh, tough, tough question. Um, <laughs> but you're good at those. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, tasks that or behaviors that machines don't do so well on currently are, you know, emotion and creativity and even inventing new things. Uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of debate as to whether artificial systems can evolve in their own right and, and evolve intelligence just using the similar selection processes that, that biology has experienced over, over time. I, I don't really see it right now. I get the comparison, but I still think that that there's there's just so so much more work to be done to ensure that you know the systems we build aren't really as brittle as they are today. Now, another kind of element I think might separate you know us from from machines and perhaps other species is this concept of of altruism and and behaving for for the benefit of others, even though it might harm ourselves. You know that's something that that machines don't currently exhibit, and some and some animals don't exhibit either. But in terms of in terms of giving you a more detailed example, um, I'm not sure whether I could do that. <laughs> There's also this component of a survival instinct, right? With uh, yeah, yeah, with biological species, and yeah. I mean it's a little difficult to be able to comprehend that even a very intelligent machine would have a will to thrive. Yeah. Yeah, because in that in that situation, the machine would have to be able to be self sufficient and and make its own decisions and evolve in its environment without without there being any human intervention. And and I don't know, there, there seems to be some basic constraints around that 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 don't really make it possible in the near future. Like it would have to have the ability to to generate its own power or generate its own you know sustenance. And how does that how would that work? If it had solar panels on itself and, and perhaps was walking outside and could charge itself, then then maybe it could do away with any interaction from from a factory or from a human for for that perspective. But but, this, but I just think that there's and, and maintenance is another one. You know, I mean, parts break down and how does it repair itself? So I think there just seems like there's a lot of like basic basic things that mean that robots won't really be walking around the earth like reproducing and uh, and evolving intelligence that's. That's uh, that's greater than, than than what it was designed with, um, for, at least for a long time. Like I think even just looking at the the videos of of the DARPA robotics challenges is a is a really great example for for where the state of the art is, and and you know some of the some of the tasks are piloting a car, so driving it essentially at one mile an hour, just turning the wheel to try and not hit cones, and another ones are climbing one or two steps, and a third one is you know opening a door. And a lot of the best robots in the state of the art stumble at those blocks. So I think it's important to always balance balance where we are. But it's very easy for for the media to uh, you know expand upon a you know a very small result and sort of forecast into the future what that might mean, even though that future is very 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 far away. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we've seen that we're very much in this this ANI phase, right? If we can give. Uh, a smart machine, very fixed constraints in a set environment, and the environment doesn't have anything unusual that could be introduced, then the machines can perform pretty well and can be designed to to learn and uh, get better at whatever task. But once you start mm-hmm. getting into the context of varying constraints, um, it seems like mm-hmm. a lot of these robots are falling down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, certain, there's certainly some types of of networks, so different um, learning architectures that are 
that work really well on um, on image recognition tasks and speech recognition tasks, and there's some transferability there. And then there's this other domain of, of transfer learning where you can take um, you can take a, a network and train it on a corpus of text, and then have that be useful to an image recognition task because there's some elements of features that are that are common between the two at a at a certain level in the in the hierarchy of features. And so it, th- there is some example of of transferability of of ANIs, if you will, but um, but we're still not to the point where where we have AGIs that can be uh, useful across a plethora of tasks without too much reengineering. I think probably the best example is what DeepMind's done. So Nathan, the Turing test is an interesting discussion point with regards to AI. Uh, can yeah. You, yeah. Can you briefly review what it is and what it means in the context <clears throat> of AI? Yeah, sure. So um, so it was really a, a paper in. 1950, that Alan Turing wrote, in which he uh, suggested this game called the, Im- the Imitation Game, which has since been coined the Turing Test, uh, and that's really a, an environment in which there's a there's a human who's interrogating a another human and a computer, but either of the parties don't know whether the other is a computer or a machine, and the human who's doing the interrogation only communicates with either the human and the computer via textual messages. And and the idea is that if the interrogator can't distinguish between the two other entities as to whether they're a human or, or a machine, then uh, he says it's not unreasonable to call that computer intelligent, because as far as the the interrogator can tell, there's no there's no obvious distinction between the two. And I think he quotes uh, you know confidence around seventy percent. To determine that, but um, but that's been like the the, the crux of, uh, of of the Turing test is it's understanding whether you're actually talking to a machine or talking to a talking to a person in textual communication. Did you see this at uh, this recent film Ex Machina? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you think? I I was pretty impressed, but I'm also a novice in in this topic area, so I'd be curious to hear your opinion. Yeah, I mean, it was uh. It's it's kind of an interesting exploration into into how humans would react in that situation because you know a lot of this is uh, as we talked about just imagining what it would be like but you're kind of observing through through the medium of a film how someone interprets that that relationship to evolve between you know between essentially a super super intelligent robot and a human it was really fascinating especially the the, the emotional relationship that developed. It kind of it had you know, interesting kind of ramifications for like how we for for what emotion really is and and unto what can we feel it. So I thought it was a it was a really cool film actually. Yeah, one of the lines that jumped out to me was when the uh, the founder of the search engine, the, effectively the Google, yeah. in the film was was talking about his wetware brain that that they developed, and he said everyone thought we were studying what people think, what they search for. And really, what they were studying and understanding was how people think. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And that's, uh, I suppose, that using leading to uh, neuroscience and, and computationally modeling like thought process. Yeah, that's it's, it's fascinating. So you've mentioned a few different types of AI, um, and we see these technologies categorized often. You've mentioned machine learning and some others. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be willing to talk about the types of technologies and the categories within AI? Yeah, sure. So, 
So I suppose like within this discussion, it's important to sort of remember that you know that there are there are a variety of techniques that are used, and, and those techniques are often you know best considered in, in the context of problem domains. So you know, there's some methodologies that are really good for dealing with with images, and what and others that are very very well suited for dealing with texts. And so so even though there's a lot of buzzwords being thrown around, uh, it's, it's always important to consider which which technology is, is best suited for specific problem and, and type of data that you're dealing with. But I mean, broadly speaking, there's been a, you know, there's been a number of, of kind of booms and busts in the, in the AI research space ever since it started in, in the mid-1950s. And, and, you know, with that, there's been different waves of, of technology approaches. And really the first wave was, was uh, mostly about rules-based uh, representations of of the way that you know experts in a in a knowledge working domain, for example, understood certain processes to work, and that was all about saying, well, we've got this knowledge worker, for example, he's processing mortgage applications. This is like the decision tree that he that he flo- he or she flows through, saying, you know, if this then that, you know, mortgage gets allocated or mortgage doesn't. And the field was was really excited about programming uh, what was called expert systems to follow these if this then that rules to come out with results such that you wouldn't have to have a human go through that. And so that was like that was the first first wave of uh of technology within like the broader goal to achieve AI. So that's that's all rules-based expert systems. Then you had this uh broadly speaking the second wave which were machine learning approaches where you required uh, a training data set, raw data on which you you essentially want to teach an algorithm to to do something. And then a test data set, which you which you use to to test the results. And the idea was that the more data you saw, the better the results would come out the other end over time. And within machine learning, you had these two separate um, uh, training approaches. One is supervised, and the other one is unsupervised. Now, the notion in in supervised is where the algorithms are using specific features in the data, uh, and you can think of these as parameters within that data that help it uh, make predictions. So make predictions as to what the output should be using a set of examples that have been correctly labeled. So you can imagine that there's uh, you know, a database of, of dog and cat pictures and you want to train a machine learning algorithm to, to recognize a dog and a cat. And in a supervised machine learning approach, you would have examples of labeled cat pictures and labeled dog pictures. And then you would say, dogs have eyes that look like this and cats have eyes that look like this. And then a parameter of other features that would be used to to, to associate with that correct label. And then you show it all these examples, and then you've essentially trained a, an algorithm on the basis of those features using that training data set, and then you test it out. Right. Um, the other approach uh, within machine learning is you have unsupervised approaches, where there are the systems learning to do basically the same thing, but without labeled training examples. And the third wave, that sort of wraps up, is, um, is, uh, is deep learning. And that's the idea that you take input data so you can you can look at that dog and cat example again but where the input data is essentially the pixels in that image and you're passing those pixels through several layers of computation each of which is essentially creating higher orders or more structured representations of that data where the last layer is essentially outputting the result of interest which is dog or cat and the advantage of these systems is that they leverage what we mentioned before which is the exponential growth in data and computational capacity and cost reductions with Moore's law. And what's particularly interesting with these approaches is that you don't have to handcraft those features. You don't have to do any feature engineering because 
because the networks are essentially learning those features from the intrinsic properties of that data automatically. And that makes them far more scalable. It makes them far more powerful to solve really complex problems where, where the data set is very rich and, and, and uh, difficult to interpret, which is the case in image and speech and, and video. So was that all within the second wave there, the, uh, the supervised, unsupervised, and deep learning? Or? So deep learning, I'd say, is the, has, has been around for, for a couple of decades, but, but it's really part of this third wave because it's only been enabled by having huge amounts of data. I mean, you know, millions and millions of, of, uh, of raw images are, are needed to, to be able to um, identify those features without having uh, an engineer either hand-identify them or hand-craft them. So really, like the, the architecture has been around. It's just that the, we haven't been able to to have the data to do the training, and we haven't had just compute capacity to be able to to effectively train these models, which which usually take you know hours to to sometimes even weeks to train. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta. And there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So supervised is having examples and then the unsupervised isn't, uh, yeah. you know, a great deal of this is it, is it, um, sort of a brute force method of guessing and receiving answers and iterating so that the machine gets smarter and smarter based on correct versus incorrect, uh, mm. responses. Yeah. I mean, it's, you'll have, uh, you know, outputs that are achieved via, via specific approach and you can always have on the other end, a curator that's saying, yes, this is good, no, this is bad. And essentially, the more, the more raw data or the more correct examples it sees, the better it can tune the variables that, that it's adjusting in order to get the result that the user wants. So, you know, in the, in, in the image situation, you, uh, you can essentially, on the other end of the model, say, oh, you called this a dog, but no, it was actually a cat. And then in the deep learning situation, if there's a specific layer in that multi-layered network that was tweaked in a way where it, it influenced the decision for the network to output a cat versus a dog, then then it'll go back and tune those layers to to fix it. And then you know the more the more iterative passes you go through, the, the better you tune the the, uh, the algorithm to output the right results. Thank God for Moore's law, because the amount of data and the amount of processing that this is going to require is 
is yeah yeah no i mean exactly and i mean in the um in the in the deep mind alpha go example there were two uh, neural networks that were used and each of those actually took four weeks to train on 50 gpus running on google's cloud compute so you could it's just not possible to do this in a, in a reasonable amount of time without that infrastructure and without the yeah i think it was 30 million uh games that it was trade on of self-play so you know that corpus of data just doesn't even exist in the real world. They had to generate it. And that was their solution to, to, to get around overfitting, which is essentially creating a model that's so good at predicting on the basis of the, that limited data set you've given it. But then when you give it a new data set, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't actually perform as well. It's because it hasn't seen enough examples. So they just had to generate so much raw data from self-play to overcome that. And you know, looking back 10 to 20 years, it's, it just wasn't possible. Yeah, with with that example, you've mentioned a couple that are some of the most famous public examples of AI that we know about. Would you be willing to talk yeah. about maybe the top three to five most known examples of AI? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you know, AlphaGo is probably the, the the one that's hit the headlines the most, and that's by you know team at Google DeepMind, essentially uh, an approach to uh, to have a computer play the game. Uh, the ancient Chinese game of Go, which is uh, extremely complex and, and otherwise can't be tackled with just a brute force search approach, because at every move in the game you need to evaluate. I forget the numbers, but it's but it's over two hundred moves, and there's again on the order of of hundreds of moves in the whole game, and so at every stage you you can't possibly compute all the potential probabilities of moves, and then the potential moves after that to be able to to figure out which is the the best move to do. It's like orders so, orders of magnitude more yeah. complicated than chess. Yeah, exactly. Like there's more there's more potential uh, moves than there are atoms in the universe. Wow. And so it's just so it's just ridiculously complicated. So that's the best example. And then before that was was this was again from from the team from team of Google DeepMind, which was a uh, a deep learning deep reinforcement learning approach to to learning to play video games. Uh, Atari video games, and so you know the best example is uh, is Pong, where you've got this essentially this little space bar that's um, floating left and right at the bottom of the screen, and there's a bouncy ball that it has to hit in order to break bricks at the top of the game, and and, and getting a strategy to break all the bricks without letting the ball fall by its wayside is is the goal. And then the only inputs that it that the agent that the machine saw was the raw pixels with the goal. Um, technically called the, the reward function or the value function, which is um, uh, optimizing score. And so it has to learn over time which moves it should follow in order to optimize the score. And what you see is over hours of trading, this computer, without seeing previous examples of how this game is played, has basically figured out the optimal strategy to win the highest points by like tunneling uh, around the side of this, of, this, of this layer of bricks so that you know, there's a maximum number of bricks that are broken before it has to rebound the ball again. Um, and it's just an amazing video to watch <laughs> and, and realize like how 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 essentially creative that a machine has has gotten to to optimize a certain task. And you know, I think bef- before that, it was probably you know image recognition techniques on uh, on either video or or just image classification, whether that's on you know, detecting faces in Facebook or detecting dogs and cats uh, in Google. Um, and then uh, and speech recognition has also been you know, massively improved since the days of Siri, 
which are mostly rules-based statistical methods to today where you know you can speak into google's voice recognition app and it'll pretty accurately understand what you're saying even in a noisy environment right yeah you mentioned that a lot of these technologies are categorized within problem domains so trying to solve yeah. things around images or text or language yeah is that often why we see investors saying that they specialize either in uh, machine learning, deep learning versus predictive analytics versus natural language processing and semantics versus speech versus vision, for instance? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it might it might be um, definitely like the the, you know, the areas that have attracted most interest. I suppose in the first like commercial wave have been predictive analytics as you've moved from a world which was get everybody online, create digital products, which then creates all these signatures of behavior that that companies or people have with that product, which then registers a bunch of data that describes that, that behavior, which is analytics. And then you've gone from just tracking this data to then visualizing it in a dashboard frenzy to now uh, trying to understand uh, what future results might happen on the basis of prior trends, which is this, this field of predictive analytics. And you know, closely associated with that have been applications in in sales uh, and marketing uh, in the gaming world and predicting churn and in e-commerce and predicting churn and further to that in, in advertising technology because essentially nowadays buying and selling ads online is is, is the same than uh, uh, than financial trading where you have a market and you have a seller and a buyer uh, and all of that is, is essentially algorithmic or programmatic in that space and then I think the you know the the last area that's that's got a lot of interest is uh, is financial services, mostly from a, from a, a lending perspective and credit scoring perspective, because there we're dealing with data from a lot of different sources that have intrinsic properties uh, indicative of potentially indicative of creditworthiness, and and really kind of extracting as much value as we can from. From that data is something that is otherwise very difficult to do if um, if you just use uh, you know the knowledge that we've accumulated uh, over time just by handling cases, but instead you know using more advanced methodologies to to understand things about the data that that aren't immediately perceivable just by by crunching the numbers in Excel, for example. Great deep content from Nathan there in part one of the interview. In part two, we will cover questions including an overview of the funding landscape for AI in recent years and major things that have changed, the primary sectors where AI-based startups are receiving the most funding, some of the most interesting applications, both on the consumer and enterprise side, which VC firms are most active and investing the most capital in AI, both in the US and also outside. Some of Nathan's key findings from his research on AI and that of greater tech. What are some of the most exciting advances in AI from Nathan's standpoint? What he thinks are some of the biggest threats regarding AI? What advice he has to early stage investors that have an interest in artificial intelligence? And we'll wrap up by addressing a couple final thoughts from Nathan about this category and what it means for the future. Until then, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.